New bombshell allegations could breathe new life into a notorious case. In 1989, brothers Lyle and Eric Menendez gunned down their parents in the family room of their Beverly Hills mansion. They claim a lifetime of their father's abuse pushed them over the edge, but in the end, the jury didn't buy it. Now, new evidence has come to light which could reignite their case. Let's recap. So the prosecution wants you to believe that they're spoiled rich kids who executed their parents to inherit millions, but the brothers say that they're victims of unspeakable abuse driven to desperate measures to protect themselves. Who's right? Let's start at the beginning of the end. It's a Sunday night in Beverly Hills, California, August 20th, 1989. Two killers creep into a $5 million mansion armed with 12-gauge Mossberg shotguns hell-bent on killing the two people inside. 44-year-old Jose Menendez and his wife, 47-year-old Kitty, are Cuddling on the couch with berries and ice cream, they're watching a James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. Their two grown sons, 21-year-old Lyle and 18-year-old Eric, are out for the night. Or so they think. It's getting late. It's a little after 10 p.m. Jose is nodding off. Kitty is laying across the couch with her head in her husband's lap. In a distant part of the 9,000-square-foot mansion, the Menendez brothers sneak in through the unlocked French doors and walk toward the family room. It's dark. The only light comes from the TV. Eric approaches from the front. He raises his shotgun and squeezes the trigger. Pellets fly in every direction, hitting Jose in the left elbow and right arm. In the confusion, Lyle walks behind the couch. He presses his shotgun to the back of Jose's head and pulls pulls the trigger. The blast leaves a hole the size of a fist, killing his father instantly. Though Kitty is covered in her husband's blood and brain matter. She tries to run, but she only makes it a few feet. One of her sons shoots her in the right leg and arm. She drops between the couch and the coffee table. She stands again, but she slips in her own blood and falls. She tries desperately to crawl away, but another shot stops her in her tracks. Her sons fire relentlessly until their guns click empty. Kitty is riddled with bullets, but she's still alive. She's barely clinging to life, but she never stops trying to escape. The boys aren't taking any chances. They run outside and reload, this time with birdshot instead of the ball-bearing-sized pellets that they used before. Though back in the den, Eric can't do it. He's always been closer to his mother. Lyle is the one to lean over the coffee table and press his shotgun against Kitty's cheek. He fires the killing blow, but they're not done yet. They flip on the lights and pick up all the shell casings before fleeing into the night. Two hours later, a frantic 911 call comes in. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Someone killed my parents. Pardon me? What? Who? Are they still there? Yeah. The people? No, no, no. Though things like this just don't happen in Beverly Hills. Police swarm the mansion on alert for the real killers while they try to get some information out of the boys, but there's no talking to them. Not like this. They're frantic, hysterical. According to reports, Eric is running around the yard trying to ram his head into a tree. Lyle tries to restrain and calm him. So detectives can tell this isn't a robbery gone wrong. There are no signs of forced entry. Nothing's been stolen. Whoever killed Jose and Kitty knew them and knew them well. 
Lyle. Police take Eric and Lyle in for questioning. As of then, they didn't think the boys had anything to do with the murders. Now, when asked if they can guess who might have wanted to take out their parents, Lyle hazards a guess. He says, the mob. And it sure does look like some kind of gangland execution. But months would go by before the brothers finally confessed. But the burning question at the heart of this case isn't who, it's why. We've heard two different stories over the past 30-something years. One side claims the boys did it for the money. They stood to inherit the family $14 million estate. Their spending spree after the murders didn't help their case. But Jose Menendez had a dark side, it seems. From the outside looking in, Jose Menendez embodied the American dream. He grew up in Havana, Cuba, with a professional soccer player for a father and a swimming champion for a mother. When Fidel Castro came to power in the 50s, Jose's family sent the 16-year-old to a cousin in America. He landed in Hazeltown, Pennsylvania, penniless, didn't speak a lick of English. Still, Jose had big dreams. Following in his mother's footsteps, or I guess in her wake, Jose earned a swimming scholarship to Southern Illinois University. That's where he fell for a pretty blonde senior, Mary Louise Anderson, a communications major everyone called Kitty. Oh, Kitty grew up the youngest of four kids in Oak Lawn, Illinois, just outside Chicago. Her father was in heating and air conditioning. Her mother stayed home with the kids. From the outside looking in, the Andersons seemed like the typical middle-class American family. But behind closed doors, Mr. Anderson used his fists on his wife and kids, and then he left them for another woman. So seeing her mother broken and bitter while her father remarried turned Kitty into a quiet, withdrawn girl who rarely talked about things at home. But she promised herself one thing. She was never, ever going to get a divorce. So when she met 19-year-old Jose Menendez, she felt like it was forever. Many frowned on a Cuban immigrant and a white woman holding hands on campus. That was, you know, back then in the 60s, but she didn't care. He was her destiny, and they married in 1963. Together, they moved east to New York City. Kitty had a bachelor's in communications, and she secretly dreamed about a career in TV, but Jose's ambitions came first. He washed dishes at Manhattan's legendary 21 Club, working his way through an accounting degree from Queens College. He landed his first CPA job with a prestigious accounting firm. He was so good that one of the firm's clients hired him to be their comptroller. Before the age of 30, he was the company president. He worked his way up the corporate ladder, eventually becoming Hertz's chief financial officer. In 1981, Jose transferred to the entertainment wing of RCA, Hertz's parent company. He breathed new life into the company with signing acts like Duran Duran, the Eurythmics, Jefferson Starship. Now, this is around the time when boy bands were gaining traction, so Jose signed the 80s supergroup known as Menudo. You probably definitely heard of one of their early members, Ricky Martin. Well, Menudo was a group of Puerto Rican teenage heartthrobs, the Latin Beatles, if you will. But the group had a revolving door of band members, most of them between the ages of 13 and 15. Once they got too old, they got the boot. Now, remember that detail because it's going to hold more weight later on. For now, you need a little bit more backstory, but just stick with me. So Jose used his RCA contacts to land a cushy job in California as president of Live Entertainment. In 1986, the Menendez family moved from New Jersey to a million-dollar home in Calabasas. The boys lived a privileged life, but for the first time, outsiders saw some cracks in that facade. Lyle started his first year at Princeton University in the fall of 1987. His father insisted that he fly home to Calabasas every weekend. Now, according to Rachel Pergament, the author of the Menendez Brothers, it was on one of those trips that Lyle lost his psychology notes. When it came time to turn in the assignment, he passed his friend's work off as his own. Princeton does not take kindly to that kind of thing. 
nothing, and after only one semester, he was suspended for plagiarism. Not even Jose could get him reinstated before his year suspension was up. So in the meantime, Jose put Lyle to work at live entertainment, but he hardly lifted a finger. Coworkers thought he was an entitled ass, not to put too fine a point on it. And eventually he was fired. Eric was a sophomore in high school. He worshipped his older brother. They were ultimately one and the same. They kept to themselves. And when they did make friends, it was usually with people who were as cocky, loud, and rebellious as they were. And one of those friends was a boy named Craig. Craig was captain of the tennis team. And at the time, Eric was one of the best young players in the country. Their friendship was like peanut butter and jelly. Together, they wrote a mediocre 62-page screenplay called Friends. No one ever read it, really, until after this happened, because it was about an 18-year-old kid who killed his wealthy parents to inherit $157 million. Sound familiar? The brothers first got into serious trouble in 1988, breaking into homes around the Calabasas area. Before it was over, they stole at least $100,000 worth of cash and jewelry. They got caught when an L.A. County sheriff pulled Eric over for a traffic violation and found some of the stolen property in his car. Thankfully, the boys had rich parents because where you and I would be in jail for grand larceny, they walked free thanks to some expensive legal work. Eric was under 18, so he took the fall for his brother. He had to do some community service, and Jose cut a big check to repay the victims. And then he hustled his family out of town. In October 1988, he bought a $5 million Spanish-style mansion on Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. It had 23 rooms, a pool, and of course, a tennis court. The house also came with a long history of famous residents, including my Michael Jackson, and Elton John. It also had high iron fences and gates barring the driveway. In hindsight, those gates were guarding some very dark secrets. Secrets that were about to come spilling out. So as part of the plea deal, after the Calabasas debacle, Eric agreed to meet with a therapist regularly, a man named Dr. Jerome Ozeal. But Kitty and Jose insisted that the doctor tell them all about their sessions, which Eric consented to. He never mentioned being abused, as one wouldn't if you're abused was listening in, but what he did say was enough to scare the crap out of Kitty. According to writer Rachel Pergament, she started locking her doors at night, and she kept a rifle in her closet. She took the boys' house keys away, so the only way that they could get in was if a door was left unlocked or if she or Jose opened the door for them. On July 19, 1989, about a month before her murder, Kitty told her therapist she was scared of her sons. From what Dr. Roziel told her, she believed Eric and Lyle were sociopaths. It was around this time that Jose started talking about changing his will. Now, this man ruled his family with an iron fist, quite literally, according to one family member who testified to seeing him punch a five-year-old Lyle in the stomach. He controlled every aspect of their lives, from the girls they were allowed to date to the sports they played and the friends they saw. And yet they seemed to worship the man, especially Lyle. He quoted his father endlessly, even as he struggled to make him happy and live up to his reputation. So after the murder, police took Eric and Lyle in for questioning. They both told the same rock-solid story. They played tennis in the morning. They spent the afternoon shopping at the local mall. Around 5 p.m., they made plans to meet up with a friend at Taste of LA. It's a local food fest in Santa Monica. The brothers stopped home, but left around 8 p.m. to see License to Kill, the new James Bond movie. But Bond was too crowded, so they opted for Batman instead. After the movie, they drove to Santa Monica, but got lost along the way. 
away. They turned around and made plans to meet a different friend at the Cheesecake Factory. Since they wanted to drink, they needed Eric's fake ID. So they swung back home around 1130, finding Jose and Kitty dead on the floor. Oh, after the funeral, Eric and Lyle went on a spending spree. Fun fact. The brothers ended up courtside at a New York Knicks game in 1990. And the weirdest part is that you can see them on a Mark Jackson trading card. He was a guard for the Knicks at the time. And that was just for starters. They used Jose's life insurance, about $650,000, to buy designer cars, clothes, Rolex watches. Lyle put down $550,000 for Chuck's Spring Street Cafe, one of his favorite restaurants in Princeton, New Jersey. He had big plans to take its buffalo chicken wings nationwide, but like all of his investments, it didn't quite work out. Meanwhile, Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and tried to go pro. The boys abandoned the Beverly Hills mansion and bought adjoining condos in Marina del Rey. You could say they were quite giddy with freedom. They dined like kings. They took extravagant trips to London and the Caribbean. By the time police connected them to their parents' murder, they'd already spent almost a million dollars. The big break in the case came when Eric confessed to Dr. Roziel during a session. Tensions were boiling between the brothers and Eric couldn't take it anymore. We did it, he said. We killed our parents. Well, Eric said he and Lyle got the idea after watching a miniseries called The Billionaire Boys Club a few weeks before the murders. The show is about a group of men plotting to carry out a series of murders. One of their targets is a member's father. That show apparently planted a seed in the brothers' heads, and about 20 days later, they acted on it. They drove to San Diego on August 18 and bought two shotguns using an ID that Lyle had stolen from his friend in New Jersey. After the murders, they dumped the guns in a canyon near the San Fernando Valley, and then they left their bloodstained clothes and the shell casings in a gas station dumpster. They still planned on hitting the Cheesecake Factory, but Eric was a mess, so the boys went home and called the police instead. When Lyle Kyle found out that Eric had confessed to Dr. Ozeal. He went nuts. He threatened to kill him if he told anyone. And the doctor didn't turn them in. Another one of his patients did. In March 1990, Judalon Smith went to the cops with one hell of a story. See, Judalon wasn't just a patient. She was also the married Dr. Ozeal's mistress. Talk about a twisted relationship. It's practically a whole other story, so I'm going to try to keep it short. At first, Judalon claimed that she overheard Eric and Lyle confess to the killings and threaten the doctor's life. But later, she ended up testifying for the defense, saying that the doctor pressured the brothers into agreeing to tape the sessions because he needed to get them to say incriminating things on tape so they would have the tape to protect them. But he told the brothers a tape would help them show a jury that they were remorseful, according to the New York Times. The one thing that they didn't mention was the abuse. Now, quick side note about what happened to Dr. Rosio. In 1997, he was accused by a state panel of breaking confidentiality rules and having sex with female patients. Patients. According to the Los Angeles Times, Dr. Ozeal denied the accusations, but he surrendered his license to practice. As of 2017, he was putting on relationship seminars in Portland, Oregon. But... Back to 1990. Judalon told the police that she heard the boys say they bought the guns in San Diego. When they found the purchase under Eric's friend's name, well, that 
confirmed it, led him straight back to the brothers. So the brothers were tried together, but they each had their own jury. And keep in mind that, again, their guilt or innocence was not in question. They admitted they did it. But was it murder or manslaughter? In the days leading up to it, Eric and Lyle threatened to expose their parents for their abusive behavior. Jose became enraged. He threatened to kill them if they told anybody. So what came next was a game of chicken. Eric and Lyle shot first. They claimed Jose Menendez put them through hell since they were little boys. Horrible stories of abuse and sexual assault at his hands. And if they tried to say no, Jose threatened to kill them. Their cousin, Diane Vandermolen, who spent summers with the family, confirmed their account. When Lyle was eight, he told her how Jose was sexually abusing him. She was changing one night when Lyle entered the room. He looked serious, scared. He asked if he could sleep with her that night because he was afraid to stay in his own bed because Jose was touching him down there. Diane claimed that she told Kitty, but Kitty didn't want to hear it. She allegedly yanked Lyle out of the room and Diane never heard another word about sexual assault. Another cousin, Andy Kano, testified that as a kid, Eric told him about getting penis massages from Jose. He wanted to know if that was normal. At trial, Eric and Lyle spelled out a life full of abuse. They claim Jose assaulted and raped them with household objects like shaving utensils, a toothbrush. So why did Kitty have to die? Because she was complicit. Their mother allegedly knew about the abuse but turned a blind eye. Remember her childhood vow? Never to get a divorce. The theory of defense was straightforward. The killings occurred in imperfect self-defense after a lifetime of physical and sexual abuse. It's the same type of defense a battered wife might use. So the state's theory was also straightforward. Eric and Lyle were lying about the sexual abuse. It never happened. They killed their parents not in imperfect self-defense, but to inherit their money. The two juries couldn't decide if the brothers' emotional testimony was real or not. It was their word against a dead man's, and the brothers had no way to prove it. It ended in a mistrial. The second time around, in 1995, the prosecution didn't let the abuse testimony come into it, which meant the defense couldn't claim imperfect self-defense because they didn't have any evidence to back it up. So prosecutors called the abuse, quote, the silliest, most ridiculous story ever told in a courtroom. As a result, the jury just won this time. The jury found them guilty of first-degree murder. Manslaughter wasn't even an option. The judge sentenced the brothers to life in prison without parole. And then, in 2023, after the boys had spent 27 years behind bars, another witness came forward with a sickening story about Jose Menendez, and it all stems from his time managing boy bands at RCA. Roy Rossello was on top of the world at just 13 years old. He joined Menudo in 1983 after a 15-year-old member got too old for the band. So during a house party at the Menendez family's New Jersey home, Jose allegedly drugged and raped Roy twice. Eric confirmed Roy's story in a new documentary called Menendez Plus Menudo, Boys Betrayed. He remembers his father walking off with one of the kids saying he wanted to talk to him alone. They disappeared into a private room upstairs. Now, Roy's allegations against Jose mark the first time someone outside the family has corroborated Eric and Lyle's story. And that's not the only new development. In May 2023, their attorneys filed court documents seeking to overturn their life sentence based on other new information. A letter Eric mailed his cousin Andy months before the murders. It says in part, it's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. He's so overweight, I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know 
dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know if I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. That letter didn't make it into either of their two trials. The latest court document goes on to state, quote, The new evidence not only shows that Jose Menendez was very much a violent and brutal man who sexually abused children, children, but it strongly suggests that in fact he was still abusing Eric Menendez as late as December 1988, just as the defense had argued all along. However, some people think it won't change anything about their case. One of them is 88-year-old Milton Anderson, Kitty's brother. He claims Roy's allegations are false and Eric and Lyle should never be set free. He told the New York Times, they do not deserve to walk the face of this earth after killing my sister and my brother-in-law. Some legal experts think, eh, too little, too late. The jury made their choice in the 90s. They didn't believe Eric and Lyle's story then. And even with Roy's testimony, they'd be fighting an uphill battle now. But at least these days, they're going to be fighting it together. The Menendez brothers have been reunited behind bars in San Diego. After being separated in 1996, today they're in the same housing unit. And they're both married. And as for the money, well, that's all gone. Between the lawyers, the taxes, the bills, and other expenses, it was all used up back in the mid-90s. So, what do you think? Did the Menendez brothers kill their parents to stop a cycle of mental, physical, and sexual abuse? Or were they simply after millions of dollars worth of inheritance money? Let us know in the comments. This is a crazy one. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.